Hello, and welcome to the Entertaining Abstracts podcast. I started this podcast basically to allow myself an outlet for all the cool, paranormal, supernatural, and just plain mysterious stories that I don't get to talk about on bizarre and fascinating details. You see, originally, I started the BFD podcast with hopes of telling these kinds of stories, along with true crime. But as you can tell, true crime is a very popular genre, and it kind of took over the podcast. So with that being said, I created this secondary podcast to talk about some of the crazy and absolutely mind-blowing stories we don't get to talk about on the True Crime Podcast. Today, we're going to kick things off with a really strange story about a man and his love for licorice. So we all know candy is bad for you, right? But did you know that it could be deadly? One man found out the hard way that this is not a safe treat if you don't take it in moderation. This article is called Too Much Candy, Man Dies from Eating Bags of Black Licorice, and it was written by Marilyn Marchione. A Massachusetts construction worker's love of black licorice wound up costing him his life. Eating a bag and a half every day for a few weeks threw his nutrients out of whack and caused the 54-year-old man's heart to stop, doctors reported on Wednesday. Even a small amount of licorice you eat can increase your blood pressure a little bit, said Dr. Neil Butala, a cardiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital who described the case in the New England Journal of Medicine. The problem is there's a certain type of acid found in black licorice and in many other foods and dietary supplements that contain licorice root extract. It can cause dangerously low potassium and imbalances in other minerals called electrolytes. Eating as little as two ounces of black licorice a day for two weeks could cause a heart rhythm problem, especially for folks over the age of 40, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration warns. It's more than licorice sticks. It could be jelly beans, licorice teas, a lot of things over the counter also contain this certain type of acid. Even some beers, like Belgian beers, have this compound in it as does chewing tobaccos, said Dr. Robert Eckel, a University of Colorado cardiologist and former American Heart Association president. He had no role in the Massachusetts man's care. The death was clearly an extreme case. The man had switched from red fruit flavored twist to the black licorice version of the candy a few weeks before his death last year. He collapsed while having lunch at a fast food restaurant. Doctors found he had dangerously low potassium, which led to heart rhythm and other problems. Emergency responders did CPR and he revived, but died the next day. The FDA permits up to 3.1% of foods content to have this specific type of acid, but many candies and other licorice products don't reveal how much of it's contained per ounce. Doctors have reported this to the FDA in hopes of raising attention to the risk. Jeff Beckman, a spokesman for the Hershey Company who makes the popular Twizzlers licorice twist, said in an email that all of our products are safe to eat and formulated in full compliance with FDA regulations, and that all foods, including candy, should be enjoyed in moderation. That's an understatement, right? The next article is a little bit of a switch up. I found this article on Popular Mechanics, and it's called, An Iceberg Might Not Have Sunk the Titanic After All, a New Study Finds. This article was written by Carolyn Delbert. Just when we think we know everything there is to know about the Titanic, unsinkable ship, giant iceberg, I'm the king of the world, etc., along comes fascinating new research that raises big questions about what really transpired on the fateful night of April 14th, 1912. Did a weather fluke from space actually cause the Titanic to sink? 
The new study's key finding is that the northern hemisphere was in the grips of a moderate to severe magnetic storm that night, which could have altered the Titanic's navigational readings, affecting both its planned course and the information the crew shared with their location during SOS signals. The idea is pretty simple. The sun, which is powered by an innate nuclear dynamo that's burning at millions of degrees, is covered with sunspots. These in turn are punctuated by giant explosions the size of Earth or even larger, called solar flares. In a matter of just a few minutes, they heat material to many millions of degrees and release as much energy as a billion megatons of TNT, NASA explains. These flares are often caused by magnetic changes or crashes, and their explosions cause magnetic ripples through the solar system. It makes intuitive sense that the hottest thing in the solar system system experiences extreme reactions to swirling and changing magnetic fields. One of the reasons Earth is a successful habitat for living things is that humans have a protective magnetic field that deflects a great deal of solar radiation and cosmic wind that would otherwise blast us into bald, lifeless Mars-like planetary surface. This magnetic field also shifts and changes over time, especially as the magnetic poles move around Earth's surface. Both humans and animals have learned to rely on the magnetic poles in the form of man-made devices like compasses, as well as animals' sense for migration and navigation. Compasses like clocks must be adjusted to the correct units, like accounting for magnetic north as it moves around in a normal way. It's here that we rejoin the Titanic. Paper author Mila Yinkova has published four previous papers about the Titanic in the journal R. Met S. Weather, exploring a theory that mirages or other visual distortions played a part in the sinking. Now, Zinkova is using weather and space data to explore a different theory. If a solar flare is severe enough, marked that historic night by the telltale aurora borealis, it can skew the Earth's magnetic field and wreak havoc with magnetic instruments like compasses. Every day, solar flares interfere with the electrical grid and space traffic. Zinkova posits that the impact on compasses affected the coordinates reported in distress signals. The Titanic's fourth officer, Joseph Boxhall, worked out the ship's SOS position. Boxhall's position was about 13 nautical miles off their real position, though. But the ship, but the rescue ship Carpathia likely had the same wrong information. The compasses of the Carpathia could have been under the influence of the geometric storm for 5.5 hours before and after she received the Titanic's SOS and until she reached the lifeboats. Therefore, a possible combined compass error could have been one of the factors that contributed to the successful rescue of the Titanic survivors. This also points to how localized the solar flare phenomena was. Ships in a certain radius received scrambled radio calls or missed them altogether. Back on land or even outside the affected radius, everything seemed normal except when trying to contact or be contacted by the Titanic and other ships near it. Very interesting indeed. And speaking of means of travel, I've got another article here by Carolyn Delbert entitled Why Airliners Could Soon Fly in Formation Just Like a Flock of Birds. Could passenger planes begin to fly in formation to draft each other's wingtips vortex effects? One Airbus-based startup concept thinks so. The concept uses a formation idea inspired by birds who commute north and south and back in large V-shapes to capitalize on the updraft generated by the birds in front. When airplanes push through the air at high speeds, they generate something called wingtip vortex, also called wake turbulence. 
even though it's not true turbulence at all. True turbulence is more like the way fall leaves follow and swirl in circles after a car passes through, because cars are not as aerodynamic and are usually interacting with more complex surroundings. Wingtip vortex is so uniform and predictable that it lingers in the air for minutes and can even work to pull on the airplane, which is called vortex drag. In the concept pushed by the Airbus incubator, appropriately called fellow fly, Planes line up over a mile apart, which is still close enough to benefit from the wingtip vortices generated on either side of the lead plane. This sounds like a good idea, but when employed in the right way, it really can be. But it's counterintuitive to a lot of ideas pilots are taught about wake turbulence. Extremely powerful vortices, especially those generated by a large aircraft, have been known to flip smaller planes that have encountered the horizontal tornado of air streaming behind, CNN explains. Avoiding wake turbulence is part of the student pilot's curriculum, as it will be to fellow fly demonstration. To ride the wave without facing adverse outcomes, fellow fly planes will use an updraft of air that's just outside the tube of wingtip vortex. This means careful planning and formation that's more offset to make sure the planes truly follow in the updraft instead of the vortex. The updraft they want to ride is invisible, but basically the planes will body surf in the most advantageous position of the full speed of wake from the plane that leads. Let's use an analogy everyone understands. Top Gun. In the movie, Tom Cruise practices extreme close formation flying and the climatic events are caused by something the characters refer to as jet wash. Unlike wake turbulence, jet wash, which is an umbrella term for the massively propelled air and gases that flow out of jet engines, is definitely highly turbulent. In the context of the movie, that idea is used to suggest that fighter jets can basically stall out without the turbulent blast. Wake turbulence, though, is less of an immediate threat, although flipping planes is still a big deal that can disorient pilots and cause dangerous complications. Think about driving a small motorboat when a yacht or even a cruise ship passes and being swamped and tossed around in the larger boat's wake. But a careful controlled technology-assisted formation, Airbus says, could mean lower fuel costs and a reduction of 5 to 10% of fuel use. Hmm, interesting stuff, right? The next article I found is very interesting and has to do with a lot of the storms that have come through recently, and it's called Why Thousands of Starfish Washed Up on Florida's Navarre Beach After Hurricane Sally. It was written by Annie Blanks. Navarre Beach, Florida. Thousands of starfish washed up on this beach after Hurricane Sally. A grim parting gift from the tropical cyclone that devastated the Florida Panhandle last week. The starfish washed up overnight Friday and were discovered Saturday morning, according to Danny Furay, chief of Navarre Beach Fire Rescue. Furay said he'd seen a phenomenon once before like this a few years ago, but never anything of this magnitude. There are thousands and thousands of them, he said, noting that they were present pretty much from the Turner House all the way to Opal Beach. Furay suspects the mass starfish beaching has something to do with water toxicity following the hurricane. The water quality was so bad Friday that Navarre lifeguards flew double red flags. You have this big surge of water coming inland for several miles out and then washing back out with everything it touches. It's like a big toilet bowl, pretty much. We were the only beach flying double red flags because of the water quality. We wouldn't want our families swimming in that. Charlene Morrow, director of the Navarre Beach Marine Science Station, said the answer is much more simple. It has to do with winds and currents. It's about the wind patterns and currents coming ashore. Those types of starfish are gray starfish, a kind that washed up sometimes after storms, but never in this kind of abundance, she said. It's happened in other places before, but I've never seen it here. 
It's the strong water and currents coming onto shore and they feed in the inner tidal area. Morrow said the oxygen in the Gulf of Mexico is actually higher right now because of all the wave action and oxygen is healthy for the starfish. But the celestial critters will likely die on the beach unless they're washed back into the Gulf with the tides. It's a natural thing that happens after a storm, she said. It's just like when people go to the beach and collect shells. Unfortunately, this time it's starfish. Well, I hope some of them made it back into the water. It would be a very sad conclusion to that tale if all of them died. And the final article for the day was an interesting one I found about conjoined twins. The article is called Rare Conjoined Twins Born Locked in Embrace Successfully Separated in Michigan. The author's Kirsten Jordan Seamus. This happened in Detroit, Michigan. Sarah Beth and Amelia Irwin were locked in an embrace when they were born at 11.06 a.m. June 11, 2019. Conjoined from their chest to their bellies, the identical twins' arms were wrapped around each other and they were carefully lifted from their mother's womb at a hospital in Ann Arbor. About 14 months later, the twins returned to Ann Arbor where they underwent an 11-hour surgery August 5th at the Children's Hospital, becoming the first known set of conjoined twins to be successfully separated in Michigan. They're so rare, said doctors, explaining that just one in 100,000 to one in 250,000 pregnancies involve conjoined twins. Few survive delivery and even fewer live long enough to be discharged from the hospital and go home like Sarah Beth and Amelia did. Two teams of surgeons, one for each girl and more than a dozen other medical staff spent months planning how they'd safely separate Sarah Beth and Amelia, giving them a chance at independent lives. Just a few weeks after the first of its kind surgery, Sarah Beth sucked on a pacifier, leaning against her father's leg on a blanket in the grass outside their Petersburg home about 10 miles north of Ohio State in Monroe County. Amelia spotted a cell phone on the ground and began to crawl for it. She looked up at her big sister Kennedy who was running around the lawn and said, Sissy, other than taking our word for it, you would almost never know they were conjoined, said their father, Phil Irwin, on a warm mid-September day. Their mother, Allison Irwin, smiled and said, they're doing great. But neither Allison nor Phil could have ever dreamed they'd be able to say that about their twins when they first discovered they were conjoined in late February 2019. Something about this pregnancy was different, but Allison, 33, who works in agricultural industry selling feed and fertilizer to farmers, couldn't pinpoint what it was. I thought we were going to have a boy, she said. It felt different than her previous pregnancy, which she carried Kennedy, who's now a spunky three-year-old who loves animals and played on her backyard jungle gym. The Irwins looked forward to the 20-week prenatal appointment set for February 27, 2019. They were eager to see the ultrasound images of their growing baby. They agreed they wouldn't find out the gender and instead wanted to let it be a surprise at delivery. Still, Allison was pretty convinced her hunch was right. I thought we were just pregnant with a big old boy, and that's why I even bought a boy onesie and everything for a boy, Allison said. None of their previous prenatal doctor's visits gave them any inkling they were having twins or that they might be conjoined. The ultrasound technician moved the wand around on Allison's belly, but then quickly excused herself to go get the doctor. It may have been five minutes, but it seemed like forever before the doctor came back into the room, Phil said. That's when we found out they were conjoined. It kind of felt like the worst news you could receive, you know, Allison said, especially because the statistics were not good. They'd never seen anything like that before. 
so their hearts were breaking for us, but there wasn't anything we could do. The doctor referred them to a high-risk obstetrician, and within 24 hours, the Irwins were in Ann Arbor meeting with Treadwell at Michigan Medicine. I tend to always try to be hopeful, but I also have to be realistic, said the doctor, who also is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan. Giving people false hope is not particularly helpful for anyone. Another ultrasound in a later MRI showed that the twins each had their own arms and legs. The girls were joined at the chest and abdomen, which can be a dangerous place for conjoined twins to fuse because the heart and other vital organs can be affected, the doctor said. We had a long conversation that day, and then they knew we had a multidisciplinary conference every week to discuss cases that are more challenging for things that have been found on ultrasounds. They left with a very good understanding that we weren't sure what was going to happen, and there was some evaluation that was going to need to take place that would hopefully give us more information. But there was always going to be just a little bit of uncertainty, most likely until delivery. Still absorbing the news was hard for the Irwins, who learned the odds were incredibly slim that their babies would survive delivery, let alone make it home or live long enough to see an eventual separation surgery. But soon after, glimmers of hope began to shine through. One of the pediatric physicians working on this case was also a fetal surgeon, said he first met the Irwins in March of 2019. Even at that time, we had pretty good prenatal imaging, which indicated that they really had all separate organs except a liver, which was fused in the middle, the doctor explained. I told them that separation of the two babies seemed possible, but much more evaluation and planning would be required. I remembered it well. I didn't want to be too optimistic because this was going to be a really long journey for us. We'd never done it before. But I do remember being very hopeful with the family that something was certainly possible. It was hope the couple desperately needed. We kind of went the whole time mentally prepared for the worst, Allison said. We had one meeting where we had a neonatologist who asked, have you talked about pediatricians or car seats? And we both looked at each other and started laughing because that was the first time we'd heard that. And we knew we had to prepare to bring the baby girls home. They tried to explain to their daughter, Kennedy, that their new baby sisters were going to be different from other babies. The team at Michigan Medicine stitched together two dolls, connecting them in the middle, just like Amelia and Sarah Beth would be, so she could understand how her special sisters would look when they arrived. They gave them to her, so she could get used to seeing two dolls together, Allison said. She understood it before we had them, and then it was never a big deal for her at all. Although the plan was to perform a cesarean section to deliver the twins between 35 and 36 weeks gestation, Treadwell said the babies were showing signs of distress at 34 weeks. Because we were following them closely, we were following the blood supply to the girls from the placenta, the doctor said. Amelia and Sarah Beth shared an umbilical cord, which Treadwell said had a lot of different blood vessels in it, more than you would normally see. We started noticing that some of the blood flow was no longer normal in the umbilical cord. And that's why we decided to move the delivery up a bit from what we had initially planned. The 3D model of the twins was made to simulate the delivery and a team of doctors and nurses and other medical staff was assembled. As you can imagine, there's challenges with taking care of two babies that are attached. Where do you put the IVs? And how do you help them breathe if they need breathing? These kinds of things. The models allowed Treadwell and her team to accurately estimate how big the incision in Allison's abdomen would have to be to safely pull the twins from the womb. This is not an ordinary C-section because with an ordinary C-section, you just have to make an incision big enough to deliver one at a time. This surgery would require making an incision not only in the abdomen, but also in her uterus that can accommodate the delivery of two kids simultaneously without pulling on those 
shared organs are causing any kind of disruption to them. Doctors on the medical team plan for every possible outcome. We practiced what resuscitation would be like right after they were delivered. We had to figure out a process for monitoring two separate patients that were conjoined and have electronic medical records they had to capture for two separate babies. We had to completely reconfigure a room in the neonatal ICU not only to have two sets of monitoring equipment, but also to have separate data capture so that they would know what was happening with Sarah Beth and what was happening with Amelia. So at every stage of the journey, we had to modify what we normally do, they said. This took a huge collaborative effort by so many people. June 11, 2019, Dawn and the Irwins made a 45-minute drive to Ann Arbor to finally meet their baby girls, knowing that as many as 60% of conjoined twins do not survive delivery, and even fewer live long enough to be discharged from the hospital. Amelia and Sarah Beth defied the odds. I remember them briefly putting the girls on my chest. It was very sweet and special to be able to hold them and see them for the first time, Allison said. It was just very surreal. There was so much adrenaline from everything that led up to that point. Allison's sister stayed with her in the operating room while Phil followed the twins to the neonatal intensive care unit immediately after delivery. The girls weighed a healthy 9 pounds, 4.5 ounces together, more than 4.5 pounds apiece. They were both vigorous when they came out, the doctor said. What I remember is the joy of seeing them and the fact that they both looked good. I went down and saw them in the NICU and they were doing amazingly well. And I remember that much more than I remember the details of who was intubated or for how long. Although the outlook was exceptionally good given the odds, being born prematurely as conjoined twins, Sarah and Amelia remained hospitalized for 85 days. How do you put conjoined twins in a car seat? That was among the challenges Phil and Allison faced in the months following Amelia and Sarah Beth's healthy delivery. We had to do a car bed, said Allison. Phil explained that it looked like a big box. It's got a couple of handles that you can run the seatbelts through, a couple attachments to reach up to the mounting points on the front seats, said Phil, who works for NLB and Wixom as a controls technician and electrical apprentice. A manufacturing company created a custom swaddle sack for the girls that was built into the car bed. It had some zippers and a buckle attachment. And then there was a cummerbund that had sticky Velcro straps that could reach across them, and that was great. A Michigan medical team made a special swing for Amelia and Sarah Bud that the Irwins brought home so the girls could sit upright together. When they outgrew it, Phil modified a four- whole rubber bucket swing. I looked at the girls and I looked at the swing and then I ended up just cutting the leg holes slightly bigger and they loved that. It's taken that kind of creative thinking to make it all work. When they were little, we were able to use just a regular baby carrier too, Allison said. While we were still in the NICU, one of the nurses was like, I think that would work. And we tried it at the hospital. If you put them sideways, you could put both legs of each girl through one of the leg holes in the carrier. Both girls had nasogastric tubes that fed them. So Allison and Phil had to quickly learn how to place the tubing back on the girls' noses if one of them pulled the other sister's line out. They just never quite picked up how to bottle feed right from the get-go, Allison said. We've worked with it, but this is the best way for them to get nutrients right now. Sarah Beth also needed supplemental oxygen. Our car is a rolling medic supply, Phil said. We've got emergency respirators, extra oxygen, extra tape, tubes, and everything you could need. As the girls grew bigger and stronger, they began to talk more about how and when separation surgery might occur. Dr. Stephen Kasten, a pediatric plastic surgeon at Mott Hospital, began working with the Irwin family soon after the twins were born to plan how they'd create enough skin to be able to cover the abdomens of both girls once 
months they were separated. Amelia and Sarah Beth were initially scheduled for surgery February 13th to separate them. Months before that, in September 2019, the girls underwent an initial surgery to add tissue expanders on both sides of their bodies. It's basically a silicone balloon, and we put one in each side of the girls right along the area where they were joined. It gets put in with nothing in it, and then we let it heal up for a few weeks. Phil and Allison were taught how to inject saline into the expander several times a week. It slowly blows up the balloon and creates extra skin, the doctor said. But a week before they were scheduled for separation surgery, Sarah, Beth, and Amelia got sick and ended up back in the intensive care unit at Mott. The tissue expanders were deflated. It was bad, Allison said. They ended up being in the PICU, which is Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, for 40 days, and then COVID hit, and we canceled everything. As the girls recovered in March from their illness, a cold that progressed to pneumonia, the global coronavirus pandemic made every decision more complex. There were a lot of conversations about it, Phil said. We asked, do we stay in the hospital? Is it safer for the girls to stay in the hospital to guarantee that they have an ICU bed? Because if they were to get sick again, how do we make sure they can get back in? The general consensus was among the team that they needed to get out of there, go home, isolate. Amelia and Sarah Beth were discharged March 17th, just as the state entered COVID-19 lockdown. Back home in Monroe County, the twins continued to grow and heal, and Phil began to fill the tissue expanders again to prepare for separation surgery. Just as they'd been used to prepare for the twins' delivery, the hospital's radiology team worked with bioengineers to create 3D models of the twins and their livers, as well as other body structures to help the surgeons simulate what would happen in the operating room. It was like orchestrating a complex medical ballet where every move, every step had to be choreographed and precise. Even the electrical capacity in the operating room had to be considered as two separate teams of experts would require duplicate medical equipment to work on each girl the moment they were separated. The team, the surgical team met on the morning of August 5th and estimated the surgery could take as long as 16 hours. The couple waited outside the hospital in the car, getting constant updates about their girls who entered the operating room at 7.30 a.m. Sarah, Beth, and Amelia shared a chest wall, but each twin had her own diaphragm muscles, said the doctors. They had one small shared sternum bone that would have to be divided and separate livers that were fused, he explained. Although the twins had individual hearts, they shared an outer membrane or protective sac. Both girls needed an artificial sternum, which the team built out of titanium bars to stabilize their chest. Gore-Tex fabric was used to place a patch over the holes in their chest around each of their hearts. One thing that we really didn't know until they were separated and the breathing tube came out was what their chest and wall mechanics would be like. Breathing is a complicated thing that involves your lungs, your diaphragm muscles, and your chest wall, and they all kind of work in sync. We really don't know how well their chest walls would work, but it actually worked beautifully. The team used an innovative intravenous fluorescent dye to guide them when they separated the livers. There were too many blood vessels that went from one baby to another. An innovation that we observed on their CT scan is that when one baby received IV contrast in her vein, it outlined the edge of her own liver and marked the middle. We thought to ourselves it would be great if during the operation we could actually know where the line was so we could divide it. The process worked during surgery just as they'd hoped. The first incision was made at 11.19 a.m. and by 1.11 p.m. they had been separated and placed in opposite ends of the room while surgeons began reconstructing their chests and abdomens. 
Their teams were color-coded. Amelia's was pink, her fingernails were painted to match her surgical hat, and Sarah Beth's was yellow. I felt my brain run through every scenario backwards and forwards, said Allison as she contemplated what was happening in the operating room. But Phil was very optimistic going into the procedure. Sitting on the deck of their home by the fire pit, he told her, I, I can't possibly begin to understand how terrible it could be, but I can understand how great it's going to be if things go well, so I'd rather focus on how great it's going to feel than be negative. Because of COVID, the couple waited in the car outside the hospital during the surgery, getting frequent updates. They were thrilled when they got the news that it had gone so well that doctors even had time to construct a belly button for each of the girls. Sarah Beth came home from the hospital first in late August, and Amelia followed soon after, joining her family, their dog, and two cats at home on September 5th. Six weeks post-surgery, Amelia and Sarah Beth have matching scars that run down the center of their chest, forming a question mark-like shape over their bellies that is likely to fade but might never completely disappear as they adjust to their newfound independence. They may need additional surgeries as they grow and their bodies develop, but doctors are optimistic that Sarah Beth and Amelia will grow up to be just like other kids. Their outlook is really quite good, the doctors say, especially with their parents. Their parents are really special people. They got the perfect parents to be conjoined twins, not only because of their commitment, love, and support, but because they're just very innovative and optimistic people. I think that made a really big difference. Life for the Irwins is busier than ever now as they juggle occupational therapy and physical therapy appointments for the twins along with diaper changes and feedings. Sarah Beth's oxygen tank and preschool for Kennedy, but they wouldn't have it any other way. For us, it's been a whirlwind, an absolute whirlwind, Phil said. You look back at it, it's like, man, remember what used to stress us out? It's perspective. As this pandemic continues, people are realizing how much positive we really need. This has been a giant experiment in the power of positive and the power of prayer. You know, some positive news. People need that. People live on that. And that's it. That's all we have for today, folks. Please join us again next time when we talk about more entertaining abstracts. If you have any questions or you want to just shoot us a line or you have some show suggestions, you can shoot us an email at lightningrodinfo at gmail.com. We also post pictures and interesting information on our Instagram feed, which is at podcast.addict. Thanks for tuning in and listening. We really appreciate you guys. See you next time.